Well, church, uh, I want to jump right into the text today um, because honestly, like even just what we talked about really is uh, kind of just a, a great lead in for us because we're seeing uh, Peter and John after this miracle of, of healing. Uh, so, I mean, just sort of look a little bit at these parallels here. I mean, they're, you know, they might be a little thin, but um, these two guys are showing compassion to someone who they maybe have overlooked before. All right, and it's very easy. And this is why, if you notice uh, both alternatives and pathways, one of the biggest things that they are such a huge champion of is that we cannot be people that are just here to save the babies themselves. We need to come alongside the people who are hurting in a certain way that are going to be causing the end of a life. Right? We need to care for everyone. Having compassion for people, maybe we, maybe we villainize them before, and we, we think, oh, they're only doing this for this reason or that reason, but we don't know the story. And so, like Peter and John, who maybe had their eyes opened in a different way, they were kind of looking at this guy differently than they did the hundreds of times before. They're going, you know what? Maybe I should show some compassion on this guy. Right? And so for us as Christians, whether it's this particular topic or whatever it is, we have to walk through our life and go, you know what? I think I need a perspective change. I need to look at this life around me a little bit differently and I want to I be a person of compassion. I want to be a person who is going to speak clearly and boldly, but for the sake of compassion. That's what Peter and John did. They showed compassion to a guy that maybe, we don't know, but maybe they never really showed compassion to him before. They had assumptions, some, some prejudices against him of some sort. Uh, as we know that they all thought, all the disciples used to think that if someone was paralyzed like that, it was some kind of sin. We know that was their thinking before, so something shifted in them, right? We need our, our, our thinking shifted. All right, so uh, I want to just jump into the text as we, we go through this uh, because this is a great picture of uh, what we already see in our culture, but also what we're going to be seeing more and more of uh, in our society. Uh, so Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 1. So as they were speaking, Peter and John, to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming uh, in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word, they believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. So the plot here, it really thickens. The Jewish leaders do not like what is happening and it's not just a few of the bigwigs, it is the bigwigs. These are the very ones, Caiaphas and Annas, these are the guys that put Jesus on a false trial just a few months ago. Right? These are the ones who called for and oversaw his execution. So you know that's going through Peter and John's minds right now. This is it. There's no way we're going to stand before Caiaphas and Annas and walk away alive. They killed Jesus, they will have no problem killing us. They're not going to think twice about this. So we look at verse 7. So when they had set them in their midst of the, the leaders, they inquired to these two men, to Peter and John, by what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, this is important here for us, filled with the Holy Spirit. And not in his own strength, but filled with the Holy Spirit. Said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed... To a crippled man, if that's what we're here for, we're being examined because we did a, a nice thing to somebody. By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, 
whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. These are big words. These are fighting words. This is shocking. And you know, Caiaphas, Annas, and all these guys, they're just going, I can't believe. How dare you speak to us this way? By declaring Jesus as the cornerstone, they're, they're saying that he is the cornerstone of a new temple that is not that Jewish temple that you guys have built. When he declares that Jesus is the only name by which men can be saved, those are, those are fighting words right there. This is blasphemous to them. And so we see in verse 13, which we saw a couple weeks ago, so when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived these were uneducated, common men. And just so you know, I didn't mention this a couple weeks ago, but that word common in Greek is idiote. So you just, uh, you, you can figure that one out. So they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished but they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So they knew these guys were nobodies, the kind of people who they wouldn't normally have boldness or confidence before leaders of this nature, but what had given them confidence wasn't their personalities or their education, but the profound effect that Jesus had on them. There's something different about them. They, they recognized that these are disciples of Jesus. So in verse 14, Seeing the man who was healed standing next to them, here's this guy, he's like, I don't know, I don't know why I'm here, but uh, I'm standing all of a sudden. So they see the guy just standing there, and so these leaders, they had nothing to say in opposition. They're just like, they're speechless. What are we going to say? Let me look at the guy. But when they commanded them, Peter and John, to leave the council, they said, all right, we need some time alone to talk. They conferred with one another, had a little huddle, and they said, all right, what are we going to do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evidence to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Everyone knows what just happened, and we can't even deny it. So they're sitting there going, everyone saw it. We can't deny it. But even though that's true, they say, in order that it may spread no further among the people, we don't want this to get out even more, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them. So they're being told, can't speak about Jesus. And here's what they say. Here's what Peter says. You know, whether it's right or wrong in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you need to be the judge of that. Right? You, you, don't, you don't like what we're going to do, but that's, that's for you to judge. But we cannot speak of what we've seen and heard. So we cannot... Hold our mouths closed. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We, we can't stay silent. You judge whether or not. <laughs> but I know for me, I cannot stay silent. And when they uh, had further threatened them, they let them go. So they pushed back again, said, well, our, our, our word stands. You can't speak of his name. But they found no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So this was very clear that this was a real, authentic healing. 
And I wonder if they were realizing to some degree that they actually didn't take care of the problem when they killed Jesus. They probably actually made the problem worse by killing Jesus. And so interestingly, they asked themselves, what are we going to do with these guys? We can't deny the fact that this happened. And even with the plain facts in front of them, they're going, here's the guy standing. We can't deny it. Even though they have the facts in front of them, they still choose to continue suppressing the truth. They see the facts but they still refuse, they choose to suppress the truth. And church, this has always been an issue with humanity. People who have plain facts right in front of them, they'll still deny. And this has been, and it's going to continue to become more and more challenging. But we as a church, we need to press on and press forward. Now recently with my, my family, my boys, my wife, we were talking about just how to engage with people who deny God, who deny the existence of God. And it's, it's not easy to engage oftentimes. Because unless the Holy Spirit opens eyes, their hearts will be just hardened and blind. They'll continue to suppress the truth. But that doesn't stop us from sharing our faith, sharing truth, trying to have conversations. Because the power to save is, is not in us, but it's in God. We have a real and living hope that somehow, maybe, by God's grace, our words that we share might be used to bring about that opening of the eyes and the heart, much like Peter's miracle. It wasn't him who healed the man. Peter made that clear, but it was Jesus working through Peter. So we were talking as a family. We know that we don't have the ability to open people's eyes and hearts and stuff. We, we just, we're not foolish enough to think that. But we do know that the words that we share, they do have that power, and so they might happen through us. So we still share the gospel. We still we, we don't close our mouths. We say, we have to speak of this Jesus. So let's talk a little bit about then opposition because it is everywhere and it's only going to increase in our lives. And this story here in Acts has a lot to show us because God has put us here for this very purpose, to share the gospel in a broken world that actually opposes the gospel. Like that, That's on purpose. Right? He, doesn't, he hasn't put us in a place that loves the gospel. <laughs> He's put us in a place that opposes the gospel. That, that is by design. We need it here. We, we need it in our schools. We need it in our workplaces. You need it in your neighborhood, uh, your, your, your families. We need this. And we've been put here for that reason. This is, this is not a mistake. It's not, it's not just coincidence. This is by God's design. We are here. And like I said, California, we need missionaries. I, I know that this is not my life to spend how I want to spend. I, I'm here to pour my life out for the sake of the gospel. My, my, my future, my, my retirement, my vacation, that's coming when the Lord takes me home. But in the meantime, there's work to do. And I'm here to spend and be spent by Jesus Christ. And it's hard, and it's... I wouldn't choose a lot of the things that I do because it's, it's difficult, it's hard, it's challenging. There's, there's easier ways to live life, but I have been bought for a price and my life is not my own. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12. Indeed, Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse going to get worse, deceiving and being deceived. So if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, if that's your goal, if your goal is 
comfort and security, then this is not for you, right? But if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Now, a little disclaimer before we talk more about this opposition. This sermon will not and cannot serve as the final word on how to deal with opposition because persecution and being challenged for our faith, being sojourners in this land, there's a whole lot of nuance as we figure out this whole thing and and wrestle with this. One situation of opposition that you're going to deal with won't be the same as another one. So there's not this one size fits all. Here's the one way that you deal with opposition. That's just, that's not realistic. We don't live lives in a a vacuum. So I'm going to share some things here. But before you kind of go, well, but didn't Jesus say, didn't the apostles? Yes, they did say those things too. In that situation. (laughs) We're going to look at this one. And, And as we go... Because there's not a one-size-fits-all approach for every form of persecution or opposition, there's likely going to be a difference in your life with how you maybe talk to family members versus your coworkers. Now, there might be a difference. Or your neighbors, uh, people who are open to the gospel and people who are strongly, arrogantly opposed, you're you're going to have a different approach. And that's okay. Uh, You're going to talk differently to your own kids who have questions versus maybe your grandparents or or one grandparent versus the other grandparent or or even uh, your grandparent in November and then something changes and in in March you talk to that same grandparent completely differently, right? So we need to not just exegete scripture, but we need to exegete people and circumstances and situations and society and and so on and so forth, right? We need, we need, we don't need a one, two, three, we need wisdom, right? Wisdom is, is elusive, right? We'd rather have a one, two, three, because that's just kind of how we are, but we need wisdom from the Word of God, and as we saw with Peter, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, because it is not just a one-size-fits-all thing. We're going to see many varied responses and different encounters in, in the book of Acts as well, as well as also in other parts of the Bible, and all of it is God's Word. So we need wisdom, we need maturity, and skill to, to work these things as we navigate. Sometimes your, uh, the opposition you face might be a little more confrontational. Sometimes it's going to be like playing a game of chess, right? So, so we just have to go in with wisdom, with open eyes, open hearts, and saying, Holy Spirit, fill me so I know how to speak. Now, like Peter, with that, that need for the Holy Spirit, look what uh, Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 11. He says, and this is exactly what's happened to Peter and John right here, exactly what's happening. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, so I, I have to think that Peter and John are going, I remember he said this was going to happen. What did he tell me to do? What did he tell me to do? What was it? What was it? He says, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say because the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. There is not a cookie-cutter response or default defense that you can plan ahead of time and have your little cheat sheet so that when you go and talk to anyone who has opposition, you just go, oh, I know to do these three things. That's not how it works. There's no cookie-cutter. But when the Word of God is in us and the Spirit of God is teaching us, we can have a treasure trove of wisdom and truth to share at any given moment as the Spirit leads us. So, as a church family, as we go through various things in our culture and our own lives, we need to run this marathon together. 
right? Because there are, we're going to be growing and learning a lot of things that we already have, but also that we're going to continue to be growing in and learning through the book of Acts. So we're, especially as we go through Acts, we're going to start adding some more tools to the toolbox so that you can have many biblically wise options available to you in different given situations. So does that sound okay? All right, we can go. So the disciples, these guys were living uh, in what we might call a pre-Christian society, obviously. Jesus was an upcoming threat to the Jewish worldview, and he was a threat to the relative peace between Jews and Rome. So he was an upcoming threat. So there's reason for why they wanted to put him down and put his followers down. But we, church, we don't live in a pre-Christian world. We live in a post-Christian society. We're in a post-Christian society. What that means is that there was a time, a very long time over the course of the last couple thousand years, mainly throughout Europe as well as our country in the last few hundred years, there was a, a great time when Christian values and morals and biblical teachings, they were the most commonplace and most broadly accepted value system. And if our values, biblical values, weren't necessarily practiced, they were at least accepted as the norm. Morality and good and evil, those things, for, for a long, long time, they were judged by the standard of the Bible, the Ten Commandments, the virtues we find in the Beatitudes. Whether people know Scripture or not, that set the pace, that set the standard. But now, today, we, church, have become the minority. We don't have that same clout that we used to. And while Jesus and his disciples were an upcoming threat in a pre-Christian society, in a post-Christian society, Jesus and his disciples, us, we're seeing as an outgoing and lingering threat. And the desire for us, about us, as we're seen as being outdated with obsolete morals and bigoted values. We are a threat that needs to be exterminated. Maybe not us as people, as humans, but our beliefs. We are increasingly becoming unwelcome. And just a little spoiler for everyone here, that's not necessarily a bad thing for us. It's not necessarily a bad thing because the gospel... And the church grows the greatest through persecution. Okay, so I'm not sitting here like this is not a doomsday message, right? We, we need to just kind of know some reality here. And then we have to, as we said earlier, the work is not done. We keep going. Our society has quickly become far more anti-Christian. And we feel it pressing in all around. It's everywhere and the pressure's mounting. One thing we tend to do, though, is we tend to try to chase the safety of Christian subculture, particularly from the past, kind of the good old days kind of a thing. Uh, we don't want to go to Nineveh. We want to kind of hide in our little subcultures. We just want to be around all the people that are just like us and our values and just kind of hold on to this thing because they're taking it away from us. But we can make an idol out of Christian culture or Christian subculture. Rather than our, our battle cry being, let's take the hill... Our, our battle cry often becomes, no, let's just hold the fort. Let's just try to keep this here rather than going and taking the hill. Just hunker down and protect what we have and then get mad at everyone because they're taking it from us. But we need to understand that Christian subculture and Christian institution, 
All these things that were a big part of our society and, and across Europe and throughout history, those were great times, and, and we can hope that those things return, but those things are not our fortress and our strong tower. They're not. Christ alone is our fortress and our strong tower, church. He alone is our foundation. The kingdom of God is not physical, it is spiritual. And we have to realize that when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We have to realize that the, the gates, the, these are the gates of hell, right? So, but gates are not, they're not offensive weapons. Gates are defensive. So hell is trying to hold back the kingdom of God. Right? We're not being attacked by the, I mean, how would you attack someone with gates? Like, you know, just, that doesn't make sense, right? It says, uh, he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, meaning that the church is going to be moving forward, taking the kingdom of God into darkness, and the gates of hell will not be able to stop us. That's what it means. Now, I'm not saying that Satan and hell is not attacking us, but what that scripture says is we are attacking the gates of hell. That's what we ought to be doing. Because these gates are a defensive tool. And so we know, yes, there's going to be attacks, all those things, but we have to also say we're not just here to defend ourselves from the attacks of the enemy. No, we're supposed to be on the offensive. We go on the offensive. Now, this is where I'm going to try to thread a needle a bit through sort of a gauntlet of context and just reminding us again this is just one sermon. So even though we do go on the offensive, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're to be purposefully or unnecessarily offensive. There's a difference. We do know that inevitably we will be offensive because the gospel message is inherently offensive. So that's, it's going to happen. We will be offensive because the gospel is offensive. And since the Bible promises us persecution, that assumes that we are going to offend someone. So we know that's going to be true. This message will be offensive. But the word of God also does not say, uh, they will know you are my followers by how offensive you are. Or, or blessed are the arrogant jerks, for they shall be greatly rewarded. Blessed are those who mock their enemies, because they will be praised for their wittiness. So, so we have to differentiate between going on the offensive and not being purposefully or unnecessarily offensive. Letting the gospel be offensive, but we are going with the fruit of the Spirit. We are going as witnesses. 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil. That is hard. Patiently, patiently, patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with snarky memes, name-calling, and ridicule. Again, it's not there, right? Correcting his opponents with gentleness. Gentleness. God, and here's the, here's the goal. This is the goal. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. That's the goal. The goal is not to prove them wrong. The goal is not to own them. You see that all over, so we're just going to own them. Like, no, that's not the goal. The goal is that they would maybe see repentance, that God would grant them repentance and knowledge of the truth. It's to win them to Christ. 
And the goal of that is that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So the motivation is to love those that want to quarrel with us. There are people out there that want to fight us. They want to see us go away. But we need to hope and pray for their salvation, that God would grant them his grace. We're not going out there to own them, to belittle them, to mock them. That's that's the world's tactics. That's the world's weapons. Those are not our weapons. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard that it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. He's saying, do that so that it could be said about you, like father, like son. Love your enemies, like father, like son. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good. God blesses the wicked and the righteous. He sends rain on the just and also the unjust. If you love only those who love you, if you only love people who are like you and have your values, what reward do you have? What's your goal? What's your end game there? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? What makes you any different than the world? What makes you different than your enemies if you actually act exactly like them, but with your little subculture? You're you're no different. Don't even the Gentiles do the same thing? You therefore, this this is the hard part, you therefore, church, you need to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He's saying in our interactions with our enemies, we need to be perfect. Now, that's impossible, okay? But that's the aim, that's the goal, that's the hope, that's the prayer. We say, Holy Spirit, indwell in me because I am not perfect in my interactions with my enemies. But I need you, Holy Spirit. I know I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength to do this. So that's the goal, is to be like our Father who is perfect. I was thinking about this as I was preparing this message. I'm thinking, if you had someone who'd never been to America, right, from Africa, Asia, somewhere, um, they have no idea of what's going on in our country. You, you walk them through the, the, the Bible, the New Testament. You show them what Jesus said, how he taught us, and you brought him here, and he spent you know, a month or two, and you said, all right, I have a question to ask. Do you think that all the people who call themselves Christians, do you think they love their enemies? I think personally that person would go, are you serious? No. Are, for, for real? No, they hate their enemies. I'm not saying every Christian, but I think there's a large swath of Christianity in our nation that hates our enemies, and it should not be so. It's embarrassing, and it should not be so. But what happens is because many of us, you know, it's it's kind of acceptable, it's kind of chic, it's kind of cool to sort of then it's it's kind of acceptable among us, and that should not be so. That should not be so. Our heart, our attitude, our motive must carry the aroma of Christ. Yes, we will still offend. That is going to happen. If we are sharing the true gospel, it will offend. But we ought to offend them from a place of love, a motive of love, and a true desire to see them blessed and saved rather than mockery. Because church, understand that any biblical clarity that you have in your life, any, any strength of faith, in God's word that you have personally, any discernment of wisdom to see God's word clearly as you've been given, just remember, none of that you can take credit for. None of that is because you're just so wise and so awesome. 
all of what you have, all the clarity you see, God's word clearly, you see all these things clearly, you thank the Lord for that, but all of that has been given to you by God's grace and mercy alone. Your repentance and your trust in God's word does not come from your own strength or humility or inner goodness. It's all been a gift. And we need to stop acting like it's not a gift. That somehow we're superior because we're, we're just so wise. We, we really get it. We ought to look at our enemies and say, that should be me. That should be me. And if not for God's grace, that would be me. And that should break our hearts. So before we mock, let us pray and let us reflect before we speak. So what all this means too, though, is we don't just roll over either, right? This doesn't mean, you know, we're not going to be offensive. This isn't a just go out and love someone kind of message. No, we preach the gospel, which is offensive. So looking back at Peter again, Look at verse uh, 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man. By what means this man's been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation in, uh, there's not salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So again, very offensive, very clear, no sugarcoating, but even here, we can take cues from how Peter somehow wove together his clear and offensive words with some greater context. Because Peter has something to back up his bold words here. He has this miracle of compassion that was shown upon a paralyzed and overlooked man. He isn't just out there ripping people to pieces. But his compassion and his gentleness and his empathy. And truly it's the compassion and gentleness of Jesus working through him. Firstly, that even gave him the, the ears of the people. Right, they're listening because of his act of compassion. He's not just going out like, hey, I got something to say to you. Right, they're going, who's this guy who just did this thing? So he earned their attention by this act of compassion. And this act of compassion and gentleness is being displayed in tandem right alongside his offensive words. So they're working together, showing mercy, showing grace, showing compassion towards the overlooked and unloved. But then also in this kind of one-two punch, oh, but hey, here's the truth. His words of, of, of clear and offensive truth are enclosed in this envelope of love and compassion. I think it was Spurgeon that said when he preaches the gospel, he, uh, he, he uh, preaches with a, a, an iron fist in, inside a velvet glove. <laughs> He's preaching the truth in the context of displayed love. Not only that, but I, I believe that Peter truly believes and desires that even these Jewish leaders could actually be saved through his preaching. I mean, after all, he just saw 5,000 people just get saved. He's thinking, why not a few more? Why not? I, I think he really actually wanted these guys to be saved. And through his act of compassion, that actually got him off the hook. They're going, well, he did the thing, so we can't really, we can't deny it. And we know that that's not how it always works. We can show kindness and love and care to others, but still land ourselves in a world of hurt and persecution. I mean, look at Jesus himself. He healed, he showed compassion, and he was killed for it. So we know that's not how it always works. But we're going to see varying degrees of facing opposition and persecution in our society, in our culture. But the good news for us is that opposition and persecution is actually good for us. It strengthens us. It forces us to depend more on Christ, to hide ourselves in him. 
I think there's going to be a sifting, so to speak, of the church, lukewarm believers, worldly believers, leaving churches, opposition, will expose what's on the inside of us. We'll change our beliefs. We'll change how we see things because we don't want to deal with the persecution. So we're going to go and live in a way that's easier, more comfortable on a cruise ship rather than a battleship. So it's not all bad. I think it's safe to say that if you're not experiencing some kind of persecution or opposition in your life, I don't say this as like an absolute, but I think it's safe to say if there's not some kind in some relationships, it might be good to assess how much you're actually engaging in the front lines of faith. Are you more of a chameleon or, or blending in, avoiding hardships, trying to fit in? If we're living after Christ, we will be persecuted. The world will hate us. We will be opposed and mocked and pushed and bullied. But that does not mean we play by the world's rules. We don't abandon the character traits, the goals, and the attitudes that Christians should be marked by, even as we take up the offensive and we storm the gates of hell. Being bold doesn't mean we get to be arrogant or rude or snarky or prideful. We don't check our Christ-like character attributes or the fruit of the Spirit at the door when we go and engage in opposition. I know a lot of you guys have seen, I've seen a lot of interaction with those opposed to the gospel. I see, you know, in real life, I see it online, whatever. And this is how I see it kind of transpire a lot of times. I, I imagine um, the, the Christian who is being engaged. And if you imagine that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is like a jacket, you know, or like, you know, a, a hoodie or something. And all of a sudden they get kind of pushed, kind of bullied, sort of poked a bit. And this Christian, they, they just like, they take off their jacket because they're ready for a fight. And that's how I see it. It's like we've got the fruit of the Spirit that covers us in all of our life, but as soon as we're being pushed, we go, ooh, it's go time. And we discard the fruit of the Spirit because we're ready for a brawl. That's not how it should be. And we don't, we don't take off that jacket of the fruit of the Spirit when we go and storm the gates of hell. No, that, that's our armor. That, that's our armor. That's the uniform that displays which team we're on. Right? You take that thing off, all of a sudden, you just look just like someone in the world who's fighting another guy in the world. No, you leave that, that jacket of the, the fruit of the Spirit on you. We, we leave it on. It covers us. It surrounds us. The fruit of the Holy Spirit should permeate us, empower us, and fuel us, and season us, and shape our words, shape our response, shape our boldness, shape our clarity. It's not either boldness or gentleness and kindness and peace and self-control. It's not either or. It, it's both. It's both. It's boldness with gentleness and kindness and peace and self-control, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's both. We don't take off the fruit of the Spirit when we take up the sword of the Spirit. They work together. So we pray for God's miraculous mercy to win people over to Christ. This last Monday, we had our, our, our prayer meeting, our monthly prayer meeting, and it was just an amazing time just being reminded of gospel truths with each other and one of the topics, the themes that came up is how quickly we forget that we were once also enemies of the gospel. We, quick, we, have, we have just a short memory. We have a short attention span. And as we pray, we're just saying, I just, it, it, it amazes me. And I fall into this too. I'm, I'm preaching this to myself. It amazes me how we as Christians often talk about nonbelievers. It, it, it's embarrassing how we talk about nonbelievers sometimes whether it's non-believers in the media, the news, politicians, whatever, or if it's people in your own life, it's embarrassing how we talk about other people, honestly. Yet in all this, like Peter, 
what we ought to still always be. Because we, we see those things. We see, we see clearly what's going on out there. But even with all that, we do still have to have a clear and even offensive message. But while still taking that message with the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the aroma of Christ. Change, letting that shape how we speak about other people, how we think about other people, how we view other people, while still being very clear and being bold at the same time. Peter made it incredibly clear. Christ is the only way. That was not a popular view with people in that day, neither Jews nor Romans. No, no one liked that, 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 word, that phrase. And it's incredibly pop, unpopular today, even among many groups of people who would even call themselves Christians. Even Christian, people who call themselves Christians say, oh, you're so narrow-minded. But are, are we really narrow-minded if we say that Christ is the only way? I mean, we're, we're talking about a God who didn't owe mankind anything. He gave up himself to be the solution, and somehow that's not enough for us? That, that's narrow-minded? God Almighty came down to the earth, and how's that narrow-minded? It's like, like imagine we're stranded in, the, in a building, and, and I know the way out. I know where the dead ends are. I know the, the pathway. And I say, hey, follow me. If you want to get out of this building, follow me. And then someone's like, well, why do I have to follow you? That's narrow-minded. I want to follow the other guy. I'm like, well, knock yourself out. But is that being narrow-minded? I don't think it's being narrow-minded. Or a doctor who finds a cure for cancer. It's this, this drug that he found, he discovered, he invented. He goes, look, if you want the cure for cancer, this is the thing. And then someone's like, well, that's narrow-minded. I want to take the other medicine. But I, I have it for you. Like, ah, oh, that's just narrow-minded. That, that argument doesn't make sense. Don't believe that. Church, you're, 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 I mean, in that sense, you're, you're not narrow-minded. You have the solution, the answer for eternal life. There's nothing narrow-minded about that. That is generous. If we go and we give that to our enemies, that's not narrow-minded. That's, that's actually quite open-minded, to be honest. There's nothing narrow-minded about Christ, truly and honestly. Now, it's a narrow road. I know all those things. But I'm just saying, like, as far as our offer of salvation is not narrow-minded, we're offering salvation to anyone who would call upon the name of Jesus. Anyone. You'll be mocked by many, though. You'll be called narrow-minded, but you have to know that it is the right and most loving thing you can do is to share an offensive message, but from a place of love. That is what we're called to do. And you can know also that some are actually going to receive it. They're going to take it. Some will be changed by it, but we don't, we don't know who. And so we just pray every time we share this gospel message for everyone in our life, even our enemies, that they would have their eyes open by the grace of God. And we need to pray first so that we'd have a true and love-driven desire to share the gospel with them so that they could be saved, so they could know the love of Jesus just as we have been given. But this will only happen if we first are changed and affected by the gospel, if we have ourselves experienced firsthand the love of a forgiving God who gave himself for us while we were still sinners and while we were still his enemies, if we're pompous and rude and arrogant and self-righteous and we look down upon our enemies and we mock them and make snide remarks, we will never have the kind of compassion that Jesus had towards us when he saved us. We have to pray for the eyes of Jesus towards people who are opposed to the gospel. I think of how I feel or think sometimes about enemies. I think to myself sometimes, I'm so thankful that Jesus didn't have this attitude that I have right now. I'm, I'm so grateful that Jesus didn't have that attitude towards me. 
Because I, I know what I think about people that are opposed to the gospel and whatever. And I'm so glad that Jesus does not have the same attitude that I have. I'm so glad. But like Peter, when we behold what Christ has done for us, and that's real to us, we will trust the Lord in those times when we're being faced with challenges or persecution. We pray to be filled with the Spirit, to speak boldly and clearly with the aroma of Christ as people who have been with Jesus. Because a witness, a real witness, will not keep silent. The Pharisees told the disciples not to speak of Jesus, but they said, we have to speak. We have to speak. Peter and John were like Jeremiah. Jeremiah in chapter 20. Jeremiah said, if I say to myself, I'm not going to mention him, I'm not going to speak any more in his name, if I say that to myself... Jeremiah says, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire that has been shut up inside my bones. And I'm weary, I'm tired of holding it in, and I cannot hold it in any longer. A, a fan, a fan of Jesus, a fan of Christian subculture, a fan will be fair weather. You enjoy the comfort of your fan base, your little subculture. Peter and John could have just gone back and enjoyed their faith with the 5,000 stayed safe in the comfort of their little club, but a witness will not keep silent. And that verse in Jeremiah was a particularly enlivening verse for me when we first planted our church nine and a half years ago, and that verse is still true to this day in my heart. We cannot keep silent. We will not stop worshiping. We have in our hearts the burning fire of the gospel, and the world we live in needs Jesus and we, church, we've been sent here as missionaries, even with this offensive gospel message. And even with that offensive message, we still love our enemies so that they might be saved by the grace and compassion of Christ working through us. This requires strength and confidence in the Holy Spirit, confidence and knowledge of God's word. It requires the help of each other in this. This is a community effort and we pray that the Lord would continue to send us as his people into the harvest. Let's pray. Father, we are, um, I, I pray, God, that we would all be convicted this morning. Convicted, but also encouraged, exhorted, enlivened faith-filled, love-filled, uh, maybe some repentance because of some recognized attitudes or hearts we have towards others, towards the world we live in, or people that live in this world or in this community or in this state, or animosity we feel towards uh, some of the leaders in our country or the people that we see uh, waging verbal wars, and even sometimes physical altercations and violence. Um, we, we, some, we just too quickly lower ourselves to their tactics and standards, and it should just not be so. The weapons we've been given are not carnal, but they're spiritual. So help us, enliven us, and embolden us Give us clarity. We don't want timidity or fear. We want boldness and clarity, yet seasoned with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. 
Help us, Lord. We need your help. We, we need to be perfect as, as you, Father, are perfect in our interactions with our enemies. We need your help. We are going to totally screw this up if we just go in our own strength and power and wisdom. And I would venture to guess that every single one of us in this room, we've already screwed something up at some point. And so hopefully we look at those things and say, how do we do differently next time? What needs to change in my heart? What needs to change in my perspective? So I would not act that way again. Help me. So Holy Spirit, would you help us bring these, these scriptures to life in our hearts that they would change as they'd affect us? We thank you that you put these these stories, these narratives, these examples, these teachings in your words so that we are not lost, we are not just wandering, wondering how to deal with opposition and increasing persecution. You, you give us hope, you give us light, you give us a path, you give us instruction, you give us clarity. So help us. Holy Spirit, as you indwell us, help us. We need your help. And we ask all these things, not by our own ability or power to come before the the throne of God Almighty, but we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus Christ who desires that his name would be glorified. You, God, you want the name of Jesus to be glorified. We're asking you to help us and change us so we can glorify your name. We know that you want this. We know that you want this through us. So in the name of Jesus, we ask and pray for all these things. Amen.